these things and um, I guess while I'm here is that I need to just to see it just kind of learn from it. Good to see you. We talked about it a lot last week. If you are interested in going global with us uh, as we do these discipline-specific trips all over the world, if you're interested in that, there'll be a table set up outside this morning and the weeks to come. If you have some questions that uh, you, you need answered or you want to begin uh, maybe the process of signing up for one of those trips, we'd love to talk with you about that. In fact, uh, we're beginning sort of a new thing here at Baylor. You can actually get one of your chapel credits in some alternative ways, and one of them would be to go abroad on one of our mission trips. Uh, There would also be some training uh, through the semester that's required of that. That's one alternative you can use. Maybe you ran ran across this in the Lariat last week. We're also going to 
be putting together some uh, small groups that study Christian practices, and then also having sort of an afternoon prayer, sort of a Vesper experience that's a little bit more, it's a small group, a little bit more reverent and quiet kind of worship experience. If you've completed one chapel and have 30 Baylor hours, you're eligible to sign up for those, and you would just need to come to the Spiritual Life Center and talk to us about that. You can also ask your advisor as you begin the process of Registration That's going to be in place and, and be an alternative for you. Now to uh, today's chapel speaker. I'm so excited to introduce Sean Aker to you. He is a native of Waco, and I'm told a Baylor graduate because he graduated from Baylor Preschool when he was four years old. He is the winner of over a dozen distinguished teaching awards at, at Harvard University, where he delivered lectures on positive psychology in the most popular class at Harvard. His research and lectures on happiness and human potential have received attention in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, Journal, as well as on NPR and CNN radio. Mr. Aker travels around the United States and Europe. He's about to have an extended time in Africa talking about positive psychology, trying to help us understand the relationship between our well-being and our success in the world. Sean graduated magna cum laude from Harvard with a B.A. in English and Religion and earned a, a master's degree in Harvard Divinity School in Christian and Buddhist eth- ethics. He served as a head teaching fellow for a class on positive psychology, a class that enrolled one out of every seven Harvard undergraduates. For seven years, he served in this role they call the officer of Harvard, living in the Harvard yard, counseling students, in particular first-year students. Sean knows what it's like to be where you are. And he is here this morning to offer a cup of cold water in the name of Christ, and you are going to be helped by what he does. I promise you, you're going to be blessed by what he has to say. So I want you to welcome to Baylor and to the chapel stage, Sean Aker. Good morning, everyone. I'm absolutely thrilled to be back here in in Waco, back home in uh, Texas. The story that I normally tell when I talk about positive psychology is the thing that got me into positive psychology in the first place, which occurred way back before I was at Harvard. It occurred when I was here in Waco with my sister. Uh, I was seven years old, and my sister was five years old, and we were playing on top of my bunk beds. How many of you had bunk beds growing up? Whoa, a lot of you. Um, So we were on top of the bunk bed. My sister was two years younger than me, which meant she had to do everything that I wanted to do. And I wanted to play war. So it was all my G.I. Joe soldiers against all of her, my little ponies and unicorns on the other side. And I wasn't too concerned about who would win this war because I'd won it several times in the past. But there are differing accounts of what happened next. And since my sister's not in the room yet, I'll tell you the true story, which is my sister's a little bit on the clumsy side. And she must have lost her footing on the bed, or she must have leaned too far off the back of the bunk bed, but somehow, without any help or push from me at all, suddenly, Amy disappeared off of the top of the bunk bed and landed with a crash on the floor, and I nervously peered over the side of the bunk bed to see what had happened, and saw that Amy had landed painfully on her hands and knees on the floor, on all fours. Now, I was, I was nervous because my parents had charged me with making sure that my sister and I played as safely and as quietly as possible. And seeing as how I'd accidentally broken my sister's arm just one week before, pushing her out of the way of an oncoming imaginary sniper bullet. (laughs) 
for which I still haven't been thanked. I was trying as hard as I could to be on my best behavior, and I saw on my sister's face this wail of pain and suffering and injustice, threatening to erupt from her mouth and threatening to wake my parents from the long winter's nap for which they had just settled. So I did the only thing my little frantic seven-year-old brain could think to do. And I said, Amy, Amy, wait, don't cry. Did you see how you landed? No human lands on all fours like that. (laughs) You, you are a unicorn. (laughs) Now this was absolutely cheating because there's nothing in the world my sister might want more than for the world to see her not as Amy the hurt five-year-old little sister, but Amy the special unicorn. But that wasn't even an option that was open to her brain at any point in the past. And you could see on my poor, manipulated sister's face conflict as her brain attempted to devote resources to feeling the pain and suffering and injustice she'd just encountered, or contemplating her newfound identity as a unicorn. And the latter won out. Instead of crying, instead of ceasing our play, instead of waking my parents with all the the negative consequences that would have ensued for me, instead a smile spread across her face and she proudly bound back up onto the bunk bed with all the grace of a baby unicorn (laughs) with one broken leg. What we stumbled across at this tender age of just five and seven, we had no idea at the time, was something that was going to be the vanguard of a scientific revolution that's occurring two decades later in the way that we study the human brain. What we began to realize, though we want to put it in these terms, is the brain is like a single processor, capable of only devoting a finite amount of resources to experiencing our world around us. And our brains get an unconscious, or perhaps a conscious choice, to choose to view the world through a lens of pain, suffering, injustice, stress, negativity, and uncertainty or to choose to use those finite resources to seeing more possibilities in the world, finding more meaning in our life, raising our levels of happiness so that we can ripple that out to other people, which is how positive psychology was born. I got into positive psychology because of my faith. I went to Harvard Divinity School and was studying ethics, looking at how our lens for the world shapes the way that we interact with the world. And what I began to realize is that that doesn't have to be separate from science at all. In fact, science was trying to answer the same questions that religious traditions and ancient Greek philosophers have been telling us for generations, for years, for thousands of years, about how the way that we view the world and the way that we interact with one another shapes not only our happiness but our success in the world. So they said this morning, whatever you do, don't show a graph because it's a Monday morning at chapel. So the very first thing I wanted to do is to show you a graph But this graph, although it might look boring, is actually the reason that I get excited every morning when I wake up. That graph is a scatter plot diagram. Each of those red dots could be an individual, and we could be plotting anything here. This could be age and relationship to height. So the older you are, the taller you get up to a point. Now, if I got the data back as a social psychologist, I'd be thrilled. I'd be thrilled because there's very clearly a trend that's going on there, and that means that I can get published. And that's all that really matters. The fact that there's one weird red dot that's up above the curve, that's no problem. That's no problem because I can just delete it. I can delete it because it's a measurement error. And of course, I know that it's a measurement error because it's messing up my data. 
So one of the very first things that we teach people in psychology courses and statistics courses and economics courses that many of you might be taking is that we learn how to clean up our data to make it so that we don't have these dots that aren't on our curve. Because what we're interested in is that line of best fit. We're looking for that average. But what happens then is that we create something in science called the cult of the average. If I ask a question like, how fast can a child learn how to read in a classroom? Science changes that to, how fast does the average child learn how to read in a classroom? Ignoring the fact that some people in here read faster, read slower than other people. So as a result of that, what we do is we tailor all of our classrooms, we tailor our businesses towards the average. Now, if you fall below average, we, psychologists get thrilled because that means that maybe you have depression or you have a disorder or hopefully both because then we want to study you as much as possible so we can find some way to moving you back up to being normal again. That's the point of psychology is moving you back up to normal. What I posit and what positive psychology posits is if we study what is merely average, we will remain merely average. Then instead of deleting these outliers, what we want to do is we want to study the people that have extremely high levels of energy, or somebody that has high level of success, or somebody that has top-tier academic uh, uh, achievements, or somebody who is an extraordinary athlete or musician. We want to study them instead of deleting them and find out why is it that they're so good at what they do. Because maybe if we can glean enough information about what they're doing, we can find a way not to move people up to the average, but to move the entire average up, which is the goal of positive psychology. When we began teaching this at Harvard University, we thought only 100 students might take the class. 1,000 students of the 6,000 ended up in the classroom on the first day of class. And the reason is that they needed to talk about a happiness that was in the present not way off in the future, once they got their job, once they got their degree, all these different elements. So one of the very first things that we did with the class is an experiment I'd like to do with you this morning. You don't have to participate in any of my experiments, that's fine, but if you're willing to, what I'd like you to do is to partner up with somebody that's sitting next to you. Partner up in pairs of two. In pairs of two, of course. So once you've partnered up in pairs of two, The person that's sitting closest to this wall over there, you're person number one in the group. You're like, I already knew I was person number one in this group. <laughs> the other person, you're person number two. So figure out who you are. I did, <laughs> I did this on Wall Street two weeks ago, and it took them five minutes to figure out who number one was <laughs> in the group. So everyone, okay. So the way that we prime this experiment is very simple. What we do is we say, over the course of your life, all of you have genetic predispositions. You have these skill sets you were born with, and you've taken your self-discipline and self-control, and you've developed those skills so that over time you've been able to pass the classes you need to, sometimes just barely. You've been able to apply to the things you need to. You were applying here to Baylor. You're now applying yourself to your class, all through your self-discipline and self-control. So what we'd like you to do is to use all that self-discipline and self-control that you've been developing for 18-plus years We'd like you to use it for seven seconds. What we'd like you to do is to control yourself with your partner if you can. Person number one in the group, what we'd like you to do is, uh, what I ask you to do is to not get angry with person number two when they do to you what I'm about to tell them to do to you. (laughs) 
Don't get angry. Don't get sad. Please don't cry. They won't have me back to Baylor. Don't laugh. Don't smile. In fact, what I'd like you to do, person number one, which should be very easy on a Monday morning, is I'd like you to do nothing for seven seconds. What I'd like you to do is to control yourself to do nothing. Go completely neutral in emotions and forget all the thoughts you have in your brain. Just try and go blank on the inside and go blank on your face. Have a poker face. Don't show any anger, frustration, smiling, nothing. So person number one, once you're ready to go neutral on your face, person number two, please look at them. Make sure you're looking at them in the eyes. And for the next seven seconds, smile at them genuinely. Ready? Go. And stop. So I think I did something wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't realize person number one was going to be that bad at it. Um, person number two, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize you were the one that had all the power in this relationship. What I'd like you to do now, person number two, is we're going to switch around. You know the experiment. You know exactly what it is. So person number two, go neutral. Control yourself. Don't have any thoughts or emotions on the inside. Control your face. Person number one, please look at them. Make sure you're looking at them in the eyes and smile at them genuinely for seven seconds. Go. And stop. So raise your hand. Raise your hand if you failed miserably at this task. <laughs> Some of you are like, I failed, but not miserably. I did very well. Uh, <laughs> raise your hand if you successfully did what I asked you to for seven seconds, which shouldn't be that hard. That looks like about, what, 15%? 15%? That's, that's really good. That's actually pretty high. Um, the average normally is around 10% that actually can stop themselves. So uh, this group's a little abnormal. Um, so what we began to discover, why is that so difficult? I know you control yourself for more than seven seconds when you sit in class. You don't talk. You have to focus on your work. You work for more than seven seconds at a time, most of you. And so why is it that this task was so difficult for us to do? What we normally hear is two reasons. One is if somebody smiles at you, you're almost required to smile back at them. It's called social reciprocation. If somebody does something nice to you, you have to do it back to them, and you feel compelled to. That works here in Texas, where as you walk down the street, if you smile, somebody else will smile at you. But when I'm up in New York and in Boston, and I smile at people on the subway, everyone moves away from me. <laughs> or they ask me to get off the subway. So what we discover is that reciprocation doesn't have to happen. But in addition to that, the other thing we hear is that, well, laughter and smiling is contagious. That's an interesting one, because as a scientist, there's no contagion, right? It's not like swine flu where we can say, yep, that's the virus. We don't have anything like that with smiling, but we see the same sort of contagion. We discovered something in the human brain that I think changes the entire way that you look at your schoolwork, you look at your faith, you look at your work life, because ever since you were born, you carried something around in your brain called a mirror neuron. You actually carried around many mirror neurons, which are responsible for what you just saw. A mirror neuron is a part of your brain that lights up when you see something in your visual field. So if I smile, 
part of my brain lights up, shows activation saying, Sean, you're smiling. Well, con congratulations, brain. But there's another part of my brain that if you're smiling at me, but I'm not smiling, but I'm in a brain scan, well, that's awkward. But what would happen in that case is parts of my brain light up, these mirror neurons, and say, Sean, you're smiling, but I'm not smiling. You're smiling. But before I can stop myself, these mirror neurons activate parts of your brain that drop dopamine, the pleasure drug in your brain that causes your levels of happiness to rise. You become happier, and they're right next to your motor neurons, which actually cause your face to contort into a smile before you can stop yourself. This is the reason why when you're sitting in class or when you're sitting in chapel and somebody yawns, everyone starts yawning, even if you're not tired. If you see someone in your visual field yawn, you'll start to yawn as well. We see this everywhere, amazingly. You know, if you're watching a Baylor football game and somebody gets hit really hard, right, and you're watching it on television when it's televised, oh, if you're watching it on television and you see a receiver that gets flipped over, Everyone who's watching in the room will groan. They'll go, oh, that was such a big hit. You didn't get hit. You're, you're sitting like at least like several miles away from the game. You've never played football. You probably played nothing. And you're sitting there, you're like, oh, that really hurt. What's going on is your mirror neurons are activating. So anytime you see that or when you're in the stadium and people start groaning, just let them know that's their mirror neurons that are activating. But the reason why this is important is that if you have 15 people standing on a subway platform waiting for the train or a train um, platform, you can introduce somebody called a research confederate. That's somebody who works on my research team, but the other people, the people they're being experimented on don't know it's a researcher. That person comes and stands in the middle of those 15 people and begins to bounce nervously in place and tap their foot impatiently and look at their watch repeatedly. Within two minutes, Depending on the replication of the study, 7 to 12 of the 15 individuals will begin to start bouncing nervously in place or tapping their foot impatiently, which is remarkable. So you can do this yourself, by the way, as you're standing waiting for class, if you too want to spread stress and negativity to other people. <laughs> the amazing thing is our nonverbals leak information, but it doesn't just leak information that people can be sympathetic towards. Our brains are hardwired not just with the ability to sympathize. Because of these mirror neurons and the discovery of the mirror neurons in the human brain, our brains are hardwired for empathy. If somebody around you is experiencing something, happiness, sadness, depression, anger, stress, any of the students around you, your brain lights up, increasing your chances of feeling those feelings as well. So what we need to be able to find a way to do is to buffer ourselves against the stresses and negativities around us, especially in the society. I mean, if you look at the media, the majority of it's negative. If you're watching the news or reading a newspaper, you can see, or if you're looking at CNN.com, most of it's negative information, which helps our brains to think that the majority of it's negative. There's something called the medical school syndrome. Do you guys know what this is? Medical school syndrome is where in the first year of medical school, as you read through the list of diseases and symptoms that you could have as a human, you suddenly realize, I, ha I have all of these. <laughs> my brother-in-law, Bobo, uh, <laughs> that's a whole other story. Um, my brother-in-law, Bobo, uh, who married Amy the Unicorn, uh, <laughs> went to uh, Yale Medical School, and he said, Sean, I have leprosy. <laughs> which even at Yale is extremely rare. And what we found was 
Well, I had no idea what to say to him because he had just gone over a week of menopause. <laughs> it's not the reality that shapes us, it's the lens through which we shape the world. And if we're surrounded by negativity, our bodies begin to take on that disease as well. So how do we change this? I began studying this question when I got to Harvard. Uh, I applied only to Harvard on a dare. And uh, when I got in, I was so thrilled to be there because I never thought I'd be there that I, even the stresses, even the exams, I would enjoy because it, was, it seemed like a privilege. But when I looked around at the other students, some of them felt like that, but other, of, others of them didn't. But what we started to realize, what I started to think about was, first of all, why is it that some people in a competitive environment rise to the top and are happy where they are, and other people don't. They stay average, or they underperform, or they're unhappy with people around them, or the challenges that they once were so excited about. So when uh, I tell people that I study this, uh, you know, I've been traveling to different parts of the world now, and not only speaking to you know, students and to businesses, but also in places where, uh, uh, in, in extremely impoverished situations. And when they I show them pictures of Harvard. They say, Sean, why are you wasting your time studying happiness and potential there? Um, of course they have high levels of potential. They're picked for that. But also, you know, why would you study happiness? Their, their buildings are absolutely beautiful. This is the freshman dining hall that I, I, I would show to them. This is where they eat their meals. And uh, they say it looks like something out of Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter, which it does. This is Hogwarts from the movie Harry Potter, and this is Harvard. We're just missing the owls. But despite that, we dis discovered some extraordinary things. We found that 80% of these Harvard students that seem to be in a place where they have all these opportunities and resources and beautiful environment around them, if those predicted happiness, these are the students that should really be happy. But what we found is, and what their question to me was, why would you study happiness at Harvard? What does a Harvard student possibly have to be unhappy about? That is based on a belief that the environment shapes our happiness. But we found at Harvard something interesting. We found that 80% of them, during the course of their four years, ex report experiencing work-debilitating depression. In addition to that, we thought maybe it's due to the grades that they're receiving. You know, maybe it's hard when you're in the top 1%, and now once you step into Harvard, 50% of you are now below average in the class. But what we found was, the, and we found this every school I've studied since, every university and high school, is your grades have zero correlation with happiness. And what that means is you're equally likely to be a happy person as a miserable person. Getting all A's is getting all C's. There is something between our world and our experience of the world that shapes our happiness and success. We found two other things. These students, like students all over the globe, are experiencing more and more stress. In 1979, the mean onset of being diagnosed with depression was 29 years of age. That was the average age that somebody was, if they were diagnosed with depression, that's how old they were. In 2006, the mean onset of being diagnosed with depression was 14 and a half years of age, which is heartbreaking. The, the depression that we were saving for our 30s is now getting pushed earlier and earlier because there's more and more stress placed upon you and placed upon high school students. One of the things we found is that the people that survive the best are the ones that have the best social support networks, the most positive friends, coworkers, family around them to build them up. What we found is that these brilliant students 
we're absolutely unintelligent when it came to what causes us to be happy. We looked at a couple of different things, which I'll tell you about in a second, outside of Harvard, but I stumbled across two funny statistics. One of them is, during the four years at Harvard, the average number of romantic relationships, the average number of people you date, is less than one. Which is so sad. And then... The, <laughs> But part of the reason, and I'm not making fun of these students, I'm still dragging these numbers way, way down. But one of the things we found is of these brilliant students who are so good at physics and math and science, 24% of them are unaware if they're currently involved (laughs) in a romantic relationship. (laughs) What we began to look at is what actually causes us to feel more positivity. Positivity is actually more important than we normally realize. If I know your IQ, your intelligence, I can only predict one-third of the differences in all of your grades, which doesn't make sense, didn't make sense to me, because I thought, if I know your intelligence, I know your grades. Smart people get smart grades, that's the end of the story. But what we found is that's not the case at all. What we found is that if you, two-thirds of your grades are not due just to your intelligence, they're based on three other things. Your belief that your behavior matters, which is optimism. Your social support networks, if it's positive, the friends and teachers around you. And the third is that you can manage energy and stress in a positive way. You can be smart, but if you don't have those other three things, you're missing two-thirds of the chances of you being more successful. But what we found is that dopamine, which I mentioned earlier, when you're happy while you're doing a task, it actually makes you smarter at the task. What we found is that dopamine turns on all of the learning centers in your brain. That's the reason why when you're unhappy and stressed and cramming for a test, you don't remember that information three days later. But you probably remember song lyrics from a decade ago that you haven't heard for a while, because while you were listening to them, dopamine was in your system. It was released into your system because you had elevated levels of happiness, which means that our formula for education and work is flawed. I always thought that if I work hard, I'd be more intelligent. And if I was more intelligent, then I'd be more successful. And if I was more successful, then I'd be happy. The formula is broken for, at every level, actually. But the point I want to highlight today is that our brains work in the opposite order. Your brains, when they're positive, are more successful than they are when they're neutral or stressed. We found that the positive brain, if your brain is positive, compared to your brain when it's neutral or stressed. You have higher levels of intelligence, more intellectual resources to deal with the task, more energy, more resilience. You have higher levels of accuracy. You can work on a task for a longer period of time. You get better grades. You get better, you're uh, hired for jobs uh, at a higher rate. Every level, a positive brain has an unfair advantage over a negative or neutral brain. But what that means is that happiness And positivity is the precursor to success, not merely the result of it. So when we're working on our task, when you're working on your schoolwork, when you're sending emails, when you're having to do work to make money, in all these different circumstances, if you can find a way to be positive while you're doing it, you actually increase your success on that task. So how do we do this? I wanted to tell you two things that we've been studying, but if you're interested in this, there's an entire field 
that I suggest that you uh, explore. You can Google positive psychology, and the very first thing that pops up is a website from the University of Pennsylvania that has all these different tests you can take, and you can track yourself over time, and you can read more about this research. One of the things that we found is, how many people have played Tetris? Oh, good. It's okay if you haven't. You're more productive than everyone else to just raise their hand. <laughs> Tetris is a game, if you don't know it, where shapes fall from the ceiling, like they do in real life, and you just rotate them around, and you're trying to make straight lines. The goal of Tetris is to make straight lines. They disappear, but that's not the point. So you're making straight lines. Well, Harvard Medical School paid Harvard Business School students to play Tetris for five hours straight, which is my lifelong dream, to get paid to play video games. But afterwards, many of the participants wandered around like zombies around campus, and one of them, a female participant, was walking through Harvard Yard, and she saw one of the professors, and she said, she came up to him, and she's like, hi, professor. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. This is Harvard. And, uh, and she said, I... Uh, I did your Tetris experiment. He was like, well, thank you for participating. And he started to turn away and go on with his day, and she grabbed his arm. She literally grabbed the professor's arm and turned him back around. She said, Professor, I need to tell you something. You're going to think I'm crazy, but after the experiment, I'm playing Tetris for five hours straight. I walked into the supermarket, and I started rearranging the bread on the shelf to make straight lines. (laughs) Am I crazy? And he said, yes, yes, you are. (laughs) Please stop touching me. And it turns out, though, well, it turns out she was crazy, but there was another student (laughs) that was looking outside the window, and he said, oh, I wish I had an L-shaped car to make that street a straight line. And everyone looked at him like he's crazy, which he was, but he was momentarily crazy because of something I call a cognitive afterimage. If I take a flash photograph of you, you'll see a little blue, orange, or green dot in your vision. I've momentarily burned a pattern onto your visual field. Same thing happens to our brain. If you do the same pattern for too long, your brain starts looking at the world through that pattern. If you play Tetris for five hours straight, not only do you have dreams of Tetris, your brain parses the world into how do I make straight lines everywhere you look. The same is true for optimism and pessimism. What we found is Emmons and McCullough, two researchers, found that if you get individuals to, well, William James was a professor at Harvard who said that if you do the same activity for 21 days consecutively, you'll create a life habit. That's something you don't even have to think about, like putting on a seatbelt in a car. So what he did was he tried to get people for 21 days straight, every morning or every time they open their inbox or when they're having dinner or when they're going to sleep at night, to say out loud or write down three things that they were grateful for, that were new that day that it happened over the past 24 hours. And not just say, I'm grateful for my health. Why? Why are you grateful for your health? When these individuals did this, it retrained their brain to get stuck in a Tetris effect, stuck in a Tetris pattern of scanning the world, looking for things that they were grateful for. This is one of the reasons that we find that people that are religious, that follow a religious tradition, actually have higher levels of happiness. And part of that is they practice this on a daily basis with their prayers. When you scan the world for things that you're grateful for and be thankful for, it changes your brain. And what happens is, anyone could walk into this room right now and you know that there are certain people around you at Baylor probably who, no matter what's going on, they find the thing to complain about, right? Those people aren't bad people. Their brains are experts at scanning every room and every environment for the stresses and hassles. But when they do that, just like my poor sister who fell off the bed accidentally when I pushed her, she 
her brain couldn't do two things at once. You can't scan the world for things that you feel unhappy about that are about you and they're selfish at the same time that you're scanning the world for things that make you grateful, possibilities, meaning in your life, how to help other people. Your brain doesn't have the capability of doing that. So your brain gets a choice. And the more you can get yourself stuck in a pattern, the more you can actually see more positivity in the world. So try this out. Be a scientist for yourself. Try this experiment. And there's literally been hundreds of studies that have been done on these gratitudes about how it reforms the brain, about how you can take a pessimist and move them up to a moderate level optimist in just a period of three months, that these effects, after you do it for 21 days and stop, six months later, you're happier, have higher levels of life satisfaction, you're more grateful for life, you're actually rippling out a positive effect to other people on a daily basis. So try this out and encourage one another to do this. Say your gratitudes, maybe start your classes if people are complaining, try and slip in something you're grateful for and watch the ripple effect see how it changes other people's brains we all know that there's lots of things you can do we've been studying these in positive psychology things that can increase your levels of happiness for the long run gratitudes journaling for five minutes a day about a positive experience you've had over the past 24 hours exercise meditation finding one random act of kindness to do a day this is my favorite every time you open your inbox for the first time during the day you write a one to two sentence maximum email to a friend or family member, thanking them, giving them some sort of praise, congratulating them, something kind. What happens is you turn something soul-crushing like email into something that you can't help but open email without making a positive impact upon somebody else's life. If you notice, most of those things that are up there are the things the religious traditions have been saying for a long time. So part of what I want to conclude with is this. Why, if we know what's good for us, why don't we do what we want to do? It's the same question that St. Paul was asking about this split between what he wants to be doing and what his body seems to be urging him to do. Part of what I want to talk about is how do we make positive things easier. And this is where I'll stop today. I want to start playing the guitar. I had a guitar in my closet in a case, and I wanted to play it, so I decided to create a life habit of it. So I made an Excel spreadsheet with 21 columns and checked it off each day that I did it and put it up where all the Harvard students could see this. At the end of the 21 days, I'd only checked off the first two days, which made me really depressed because I'm a positive psychologist. And then it made me feel depressed that I was depressed because I'm a positive psychologist. So what I did was I took a stopwatch and timed how long it took me to get the watch, or the, uh, the, the guitar out of the case and the guitar out of the closet. That took me 20 seconds, which is good, but not applause-worthy. Then I bought a $2 stand from one of my friends and put the guitar out in the, uh, the case and closet on the stand in the middle of my common room and then tried the experiment again. 21 days later, I'd created a life habit out of playing the guitar. Every day I'm in Cambridge, I play guitar. When I'm there, when not there, I miss it. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story isn't Sean learns to play the guitar, which would be a very boring and self-involved story. The point of the story was I had an illusory... 20-second barrier to doing something I wanted to do. Every time I walked past that closet, I'd say, do I want to play the guitar? And my brain said, no. It takes forever to play that, to get the guitar out of the case and out of the closet. Let's go do something else. I'd say, okay. What was happening there is something called activation energy. In order to uh, catalyze a reaction in physics, there's an initial investment of energy that's the highest in the formula. If you want to make a positive change in your life, the initial investment of energy is the hardest part. That's why we procrastinate. 
right? Because we need to get over that big hump, and once we've started, it's much easier. So if that's true, if you're trying to create a positive habit, and I suggest you try one for the next 21 days and see if it affects any of the things we were just talking about today. See if you can make it easier for yourself. For example, I want to start exercising every morning, but every morning I wake up and say, do I want to exercise? No. Where are my clothes? Where are my shoes? Where am I going to work out? By that point, I've fallen back asleep. So then I just decided to make it easier and to drop that activation energy by going to sleep in my gym clothes. Um, they were clean, <laughs> and I had shoes next to my bed, and I did this for 21 days. I don't have to do this anymore because I create a life habit of it. Because I made it so easy, all I had to do was walk, roll out of bed, and right into my shoes, and I could start exercising that morning. What we found in subsequent studies, if you get on your shoes, your athletic shoes, you find that your brain does a weird thing. It says it's easier to go work out now than to take all the stuff back off again, which isn't true. So the point of all of this today is that your brains work better at positive. And because we're hardwired with these mirror neurons, we're linked. So if you can create a positive habit in your life, not only is it going to increase your success rates here at Baylor, but you're going to ripple it out to other people so that maybe more of the world can begin to see not just the depression, stress, uncertainty, and negativity in the world through that lens, but hopefully to begin to view the world through a lens much more of positivity, of possibility, of things you're grateful for and things that make you more successful. And maybe to see the world a little bit more through the lens, as my sister did, of a unicorn. So thank you very much for your time. Let me uh, close this in a benediction. So uh, would you please stand? Please go in peace and in love and ripple this positivity out to everyone you see today. Thank you. Amen.